Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Tortoise. Hello, it's James. It's the weekending Friday, the 1st of March. And from Tortoise, welcome to the news meeting. I do hereby declare that George Galloway is duly... I want to tell Mr. Starmer above all that the plates have shifted. Some angry parents and kids were left with a sour taste when a Willy Wonka immersive experience proved to be anything but a treat. Kensington Palace insists the Princess of Wales continues to be doing well. They didn't categorically say that Prince William's absence was not to do with the Princess of Wales, but they uh, are not going to go into any further details. The Hamas-run health ministry in Gaza has announced that more than 30,000 Palestinians have been killed in the territory since the conflict began on October the 7th. Although Wayne Cousins was not wholly a product of his working environments, those environments did nothing to discourage his misogynistic view of women and meant that providing he presented himself as professional, his deviant behaviour outside of work could flourish. So what should lead the news? I'm joined by Jeevan Vasagar, who's the climate editor here at Tortoise. Hello, Jeevan. How are you? Hi, James. I'm well, thanks. And from San Francisco, I'm joined by the great husband and wife reporting team who won, well, a whole whole load of prizes, but not least the biggest in journalism, the Pulitzer Prize, and are now going to be writing for us at Tortoise a new letter from America, a letter from Americans, I guess. Kevin and Mary, thank you so much. It's great to have you here. I should just say to you, you know that when I talked about this and the two of you at home, in fact, it was... um, my daughter, who was like, okay, what is that? What is the Pulitzer Prize? And I went on at some great length, and she said, oh, right, that's amazing. And then said, but I don't get it. When you pull it, what's the surprise? <laughs> and that's the world's sweetest thing, I think, about the Pulitzer Prize. So what are you going to write for us? How are you going to capture the whole of the United States in this interesting year between the two of you? Well, we, we didn't sign up for that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone signed up for that. I'm not sure anyone could do that. We're going to take little moments and hopefully illuminate bigger things that we see. Uh, we are based in Washington, D.C., but travel around a bit, so you'll be hearing wherever we are. It'll be just, you know, Mary and Kevin drop in as we are now in San Francisco. And we hope it's of interest. We were foreign correspondents for a long time, and we wrote about what was going on in Japan or in some far corner of the world for Americans. And anyway, we thought we'd try it at home here. And we're going to try not to just repeat what, what your readers have already seen in the news. You know, we won't be doing Donald Trump rallies and that sort of thing. We'll, we'll try to give you a little slice of what it's like to live here. And as Mary said, we'll try to exercise the same foreign correspondent muscles that we used to use overseas here in America. Okay, well, I can't wait. I'm really excited about it, and and, um, and do look out for it. We're going to be launching in March. Okay, let's get into the stories then that you think should lead the news. Kevin and Mary, the idea here is that 
particularly in the UK, as you know, there's this tendency for newsrooms all to group around the same stories. And then you'll hear people say, well, that makes no sense. Those stories are old stories, or those stories are process stories, or those stories are of really marginal interest to most people. What really should be leading the news? And so I hope that you'll bring both your journalistic experience, but also a different perspective on what you think should be leading the news. I'm going to ask you, long story short, in a nutshell, what you think should be the top story at the end of this week, at the last, at the close of February. Mary, why don't you go first? What would be yours? We call those stories talkers, right? It's what people are really talking about, as opposed to, you know, what they hear on TV or the radio. So we just, we travel a lot. And we are constantly complaining and hearing other people about the airports in America. Why are they so horrible? <laughs> um, the JFK airport, it's an embarrassment. Um, our son came through and he's like, wow, if you're in Europe you know, or in Asia, and then you come back to JFK, you're like third world country. You know, it is an embarrassment. And so I, I think it's worth talking about. There is some hope on the horizon. There's a once in a generation investment in this infrastructure because the country has a bit of a feel like Whoops, did someone forget to, uh, you know, keep the maintenance up? But there is $19 billion plan to fix JFK. And we can talk about some other things about the infrastructure. But there has been some more than neglect on kind of what the look and feel, especially at these gateway points when people are coming through from other countries. It's kind of been embarrassing. Let's come to that. It will be a talk. Jeevan, what's your story? Uh, so, James, my, my pitch in a line is he should never have been a police officer. And this is the story of Wayne Cousins, uh, the story, the report, the official inquiry into Wayne Cousins, who is the Met police officer who murdered Sarah Everard in 2021. OK, this will be interesting, actually, I think, Kevin Mary, because this story, I don't know whether or not you followed it in the UK, is one of the most just deeply upsetting and shocking stories within the police. And it'll be interesting how it how it would sound to American ears, given the focus there's been on police in the US. Kevin, what's yours? I may not look like a Swifty. <laughs> I may not be exactly the right demographic, but I'm the father of a 28-year-old woman who, who is a, who is an absolute dyed-in-the-wool Swifty. Um, Taylor Swift. I mean, I know we're all sick of the whole thing, but there's just some stuff going on over here with her. Uh, one in three Republicans, there was a poll out a couple of weeks ago, one in three Republicans in the United States believe that the whole Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey romance is some sort of deep state operation designed to help, to help the, for the re-election of Joe Biden. It's amazing. It's absolutely remarkable because, I mean, some people have fun with this, but, but the, the problem is that people seem to, a lot of people seem to take it quite seriously. Well, I quite like to take it quite seriously because I'm quite intrigued to know what she does and what you think she should do in a U.S. election year? Well, it's, it's, it's remarkable. I mean, we, we, you know, back in, this goes back, back in 2008, um, Oprah Winfrey um, endorsed Barack Obama over Hillary Clinton during the primaries. And everyone sort of agrees as they look back on it now that it was a big turning point. Um, you know, Hillary had been ahead and this was, this was something that really kind of turned the tide for Obama. So these big celebrity endorsements Sometimes they seem like they're they're they don't do much, but sometimes they seem like they're incredibly important. And with with Taylor Swift, 
everybody agrees that we like that we love Taylor Swift, except again, Republicans are it's the only demographic group or the only group out there where is as many people dislike her as like her, according to the, if you look at the polls of Republicans about Taylor Swift. So Kevin, why don't we why don't we do this story first, in fact? Why don't we do Taylor Swift first? Just because it's an interesting way of looking at the politics of the US. But so should we just go down the rabbit hole for a second of what's the the theory? Explain the deep state theory. The theory is that 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 Joe Biden and the Democrats and the deep state have figured out that have have set up this whole Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey thing. It's all just a big setup. And they are doing it because they they and they also think the Super Bowl was thrown. I mean, there are a lot of people who suspect that the fact that Travis Kelsey's team, the Kansas City Chief, won the Super Bowl was kind of preordained by the deep state. So in the fall, there's going to be a big, Vivek Ramaswamy, who was one of the candidates running against Trump, uh, was kind of the big proponent of this. And he said, there's going to be a big fake endorsement of Joe Biden. This, this whole thing is a setup to get the, you know, the, this, this incredibly popular power couple and popular culture to endorse Biden. But that's what they think. They think it's, it's all just a big setup. Or if they don't think it, they're trying to get this out there to mute the power that she could have because celebrity endorsements turn out they really count. But Mary, what do you think of whether or not Taylor Swift in any way moves opinion politically? She wears something, all of a sudden that dress is sold out. She says something, kids are talking about it. And the whole reason that this conspiracy theory is out there is because she does have real power. And, you know, it's, it's a little dangerous about what she says, right? So, so, you know, people are saying, well, is she going to come out right before? I think a lot of people think closer to the election, we may be hearing something from her. Um, because I think a lot of people say, hey, you have a responsibility with all that power to kind of point out some of the hypocrisy or uh, some of the other things in candidates. But it, it is tricky for artists, but definitely she has power. There was a, a few years ago, there's a very famous video clip of, of Taylor Swift sitting around. This is probably eight or nine years ago now. Um, and for a long time, people wondered if she was actually a, a Republican herself. And there's a video that, that happened. Of, it was her, her and her parents and her manager sitting around talking about this. And she very much wanted to come out and start endorsing um, a couple of Democratic candidates. And her father was saying, you can't do this, Taylor. You're going to lose half your audience. This is crazy. You can't, you know, half your audience is conservative Americans, and you can't do this. And she was very passionate in saying, no, I really feel like it's time for me to stand up and do some of this. Uh, so she even she understands the, 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 the potential hit that she could take. Is there not a neat route through this for her, which is whatever your politics, get out and vote, knowing that the biggest issue for the Democrats is getting younger voters to vote? Well, and she did exactly that. Last year, she, it was an Instagram post where she said, everyone should go to vote.org and sign up to vote. Registering to vote is the most important thing you can do. And within a few hours, 35,000 people, most of them young, um, registered to vote, which is obviously plays to the, to the Democrats' kind of long-term bigger strategy. I mean, you can spend millions of dollars on, to get out the vote on TV ads, radio ads, or you can have Taylor Swift have one Instagram post and you might get more bang for your buck out of that one, one posting. So you're absolutely right. I mean, she has an enormous amount of sway with younger voters and 
you know, Biden's team, you know, needs some help because a lot of people are worried that their people are going to go, really, that old guy? I don't know. Maybe I'll just stay home. I imagine Jeevan is sitting here quietly humming the tune, I forgot that you existed. Uh, and, um, <laughs> Jeevan, Everybody's got one of those, Dan. Jeevan, do, what's your take? Do you think that these celebrity endorsements are subjects that we f are fascinated by because they make politics more interesting than it actually is, but in the end it doesn't make much difference to the way people vote? I think there may be a couple of things to be sort of picked apart here. One of them is the idea that um, the relationship is a sort of fake relationship. And I understand there's a sort of history of celebrities having relationships as PR stunts. I've got no idea whether that's the case here or not. Um, hopefully it's not and they're truly in love. Um, but I think the, the other thing is the sort of question of like, what is the boundary between culture and politics and and artists and politics? And, and my view is that culture is part of society. Artists are citizens. It's great for culture to be political. That's absolutely fine. Um, you know, I, I mean, you, you argued that it, one way through this is for Taylor Swift to say, get out and vote. Well, sure, that's one way, one way through it. Another, another way through it is just for Republicans to recruit their own pop stars. Kevin, thank you for Taylor Swift. We had Chris Anderson, the head of TED, on at the start of the week. And we were talking about whether or not you should focus on one theme through a whole conversation or really bounce around. And the TED theory is that... Actually, if you talk about things that are very, very different, it sort of sparks different parts of your mind and you think more deeply and differently about things. That's an explanation and partly an excuse for the fact that we're going to move from a Taylor Swift discussion to a discussion about a murderer and rapist working in the Metropolitan Police. But that's what we're going to do. So with that, Jeevan, Wayne Cousins. So, James, this is one of the most horrific and high-profile crimes of, of recent years, which is the rape and murder of Sarah Everard by a serving Met police officer, Wayne Cousins. I'm going to talk about it in two ways, if I can. First is just to tell you a bit about what happened this week, which is the report of the inquiry and the main findings of that, but then maybe to sort of slow things down a little in a tortoise style and, and think about what it tells us. Um, and the first thing to say is that the uh, this report... Um, says that there was repeated failure to deal with allegations of sexual misconduct against Wayne Cousins. There were a number of incidents um, of him indecently exposing himself. And the two most recent ones before Sarah Everard's murder were in February 2021 at a drive through McDonald's um, in Kent. Uh, we drove in with his car, used his credit card. So there were obvious questions about um, why uh, insufficient action was taken to investigate those incidents. Um, and the key finding really is that he should never have become a police officer because of the warning signs that his behaviour raised over the years. And I just want to dig into this a little bit and, and talk about sort of three, I think, deeper things in the report. The first thing, which I think is really important and has been said before, but is worth saying again, is that Cousins wasn't a bad apple. Um, so uh, the report talks about a much wider problem, and previous reports have talked about this as well, a much wider problem in the Met and other police forces. Um, and if I can make a parallel, perhaps with the Catholic Church, there's a sense here of a systemic failing to prevent predators from accessing organisations um, in order to perpetrate abuse, basically. And I think the second thing I want to sort of touch on in the report is the sense that there's a culture of misogyny and this is shielded to some extent by, by technology. So there was a WhatsApp group um, that the report identifies that Cousins was a part of. There were seven police officers, including him, uh, on this WhatsApp group. Um, and it was basically a private space where really horrendous language uh, w was allowed to, to flourish. And mobile phones 
um, the reporters are also have also been used to facil- to facilitate abuse and specifically in sort of plain language. I'm talking about dick pics, basically, so pictures of of his genitalia. Um, and critically, there's a sense here that the police aren't taking indecent exposure seriously enough as a crime and spotting the risk um, that that poses um, in terms of being part of a continuum of more serious behaviour. And, and just the third and final point that I think is really interesting in this report is the importance of finance as a warning sign. Um, so Cousins' finances had been very shaky, shaky. He had a tendency to spend excessively and try and mask this behaviour. And what the report identifies, um, well, traditionally this has been seen as something that makes police officers vulnerable to corruption. But what the report identifies, I think, is something new. And um, the report says this was a source of stress for him. There was actually a connection between his stress over his finances and his sexually offending behaviour. And the murder of Sarah Everard happened at a moment when he was at a peak of financial stress. So I think there are sort of a number of things there that are interesting and potentially new. Do you want to just dig into the first point you made about the failure to investigate by the police, given the evidence they had? Is that because the evidence they had was not really sufficient or because there's a cultural bias against investigating their own? So what the, the finding of the report was that there was a lack of investigative curiosity and that, that was the significant problem, um, that there was evidence that uh, the police could have sought um, using the automated number plate recognition system, for example, to, to trace the car. Um, there were lines that, that could have been pursued and weren't pursued. Um, and the suggestion here is that part of that is because... Um, the way that we see indecent exposure is, is insufficiently serious. We don't treat it as a serious crime that needs to be pursued um, and, and until the point where we see how it can escalate. But, but is that, they're saying, a problem kind of across the board for police officers and the public at large? Or is there, because I, when I hear that phrase, lack of investigative curiosity, I've got to say it really winds me up because I think that actually means the police don't investigate the police in the way in which they might investigate the public. Was that not what they were saying? Uh, no, that isn't what they were saying because I, I don't think I, I think it, I think it wasn't known that he was a police officer when that uh, when the when those events happened. Oh, I see. So we're talking about um, events immediately prior to the murder of Sarah, Sarah Everard, where his identity as a police officer wasn't known. The, the two cases that both happened at a McDonald's drive-through in Kent, where a, a man who turned out to be Wayne Cousins uh, exposed himself to female staff. Um, they weren't fully investigated, even though he sort of drove through, used his credit card, uh, used his own car. Uh, it could have been that they were investigated, he was identified as the culprit, um, but they weren't pursued. And it wasn't known at the time that this was Wayne Cousins, that he was a police officer. Oh, I see. And is that because the report says these events, people exposing themselves, is not properly treated as a serious crime? Exactly that. So there were a sequence of sexual offences uh, which took various forms, but, but very frequently uh, forms of indecent exposure. And these happened over the years. They were committed by Wayne Cousins over the years and they weren't fully investigated. And that's, and that's, that's essentially because uh, there is within the police, it seems, a, a misogynistic culture which isn't taking these offences seriously. If you were Met Commissioner now... What would you do? Or have they committed to give a sense of what happens differently as a result of this? I'm thankfully not a commissioner. I don't have to think like one. I have to think like a journalist. And I think the question really is what happens next for the Met and whether it carries on 
um, existing in the, sh- the same shape that it has done. Um, because th- there, have, there has been previous investigation by Louise Casey into how the Met operates. And one of her findings was that the Met is essentially operationally dysfunctional in, in, the, in the shape that it is. And she said that that was because there were a number of competing elements within the Met and, and that needed to be addressed. So that perhaps is the organisational bureaucratic question. Uh, but, but there is, I think, a lot more reporting to be done on this, on, on how the Met works and, and why it's not working. Uh, actually, before we get done with this, one final thing, for just for uh, Kevin or Mary, I don't know who's best on this, which is there's this conversation that's been going on for a few years in the UK about the structure of the policing, right? So our policing structure is similar to yours, which is rooted in places. Um, we don't really have a national police force. And I think it's the same in the US, right? You've got NYPD and LAPD, etc. There are people who say that's part of the problem. The problem is that they are they are local monopolies, and with all the problems that monopolies have. Well, it's a huge issue here, and you know the sheriff. Who's the sheriff? Like some some places um, in California have sheriff offices, some have police offices, some have standards that are nothing like the standards across the county line. Um, a lot of people are talking about it, but because of constitution and the way the country's set up, there's almost nothing that people can see. We can't make a federal police force because the House representatives and Congress would never pass it. Interesting. Okay. Let's take a beat. Jeevan, thank you for talking about this. I realize it's a difficult one to do, which is how do you manage what you read and what you can say, but thank you for giving a sense of it and also giving us some structure to it. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. 's then turn Mary to what it is like to arrive in an airport in the United States um, as a regular visitor JFK and Dulles <laughs> thank you for the welcome and the hour and 40 minutes in the queue at immigration um, but as an American who flies from airport to airport do you also think it's strange that the airports seem not to care much about passengers? The Wright brothers were American guys who put up planes in the sky. We like to think of ourselves as pretty good in leaders in modern aviation. So there has been a lot of soul searching about why, when there are rankings of the best airports in the world, 20 best airports in the world, not a single one is American. And I think the reason, you know, you come into JFK, the ridiculous lines, the ridiculous welcome to people, it's important, the first impression. And maybe, too, that when you see these airports that look like underground garages, they're not very nice. You know, you go to Doha or Seoul or uh, Dubai or Delhi, and they have plants, they have music, they have nice shops. Um, Things, you know, it was basically uh, a multi-billion dollar lack of investment. You know, America is a new country, so we don't have Westminster Abbey and Notre Dame, right? 
we kind of have pride in what we can build and how we're modern. You know, we're out in California, the Google headquarters, the shiny Apple headquarters. So it, this kind of crumbling of the infrastructure, especially these gateways, kind of coincides with this feeling that America is not, the, not what it used to be and that it's kind of crumbling a bit of its own identity. And so there has been more emphasis and the Biden administration actually, the one of the very few things, really important things that passed Congress under the Biden administration has been the infrastructure package. And so there is $19 billion going into the JFK airport. And in two years, you'll see a new international terminal there. And in six years, you'll see more terminals. But these are these, this has been this long-term decline in these gateways that, you know, again, I think that these things matter more to Americans maybe because there are landmarks and it kind of makes you feel like we're still a leader. Well, I was just thinking, as you were talking, Mary, whether or not that 19 billion is going to be nearly enough. I mean, I don't know about building ground infrastructure projects, but I've been to JFK a fair few times. It's a pretty distributed airport. To build really big terminals, I'd be surprised if you could do that with just the 19 that's billion. That's just for Terminal 1. Oh, I that's think just... that's just for Terminal 1. Yeah. Oh, the one that's going to open in two years. No, the, 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 the money involved is staggering. And I think that's why it's been let go every administration well i'll be out of here in four years let the next guy handle it (laughs) so so i'll tell you what i think when you say this is that there's a curious thing about the united states and its relationship with public ownership and public spaces so your national parks right the sort of teddy roosevelt creations are the envy of the world right but your urban public spaces i can't think of many that rival the kind of the great European train stations or, funnily enough, the Asian airports. The, you know, there's Union Station in D.C., there's Grand Central, obviously, but it's, you know, struggling to keep itself together. Do you think one of the reasons why American airports are not these great cathedrals is because there's not an understanding of public infrastructure to provide... Uh, the platforms for private enterprises. And what's happened is every single one of these airports is, if you like, split and dissipated, distributed between these rival private companies. What's the reason for the airports being a bit crummy? It depends on the locality. So right now, one of the best airports we have is in Minneapolis. Minneapolis, right? And Seattle. Now, that's because leadership in those states money in those states and a partnership with the business and the governor. And so that's why it's such a hodgepodge. You know, you can have the worst embarrassing piece of crap airport in one state. And now now we're starting to see, you know, like in Minneapolis, I think it was just voted the best airport in America. Not that many people get to see it. So we need to do this with some of the other places. You also see this with... um... You know, other big public projects like sports stadiums, um, you know, there's this real ambivalence about how much public money should go into, you know, a new, a new stadium for a football team or a new, a new ballpark for a Major League Baseball team. 
And some localities are really into it and so others aren't. Like right now we're about to lose in DC, it looks like we're about to lose our the 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 professional basketball team and the hockey team to Northern Virginia, just across the Potomac, because the mayor of Washington just kind of drew a line and said, I'm not the the owner of the team wants to wants to rebuild the, the stadium. He wants a new facility. The mayor of Washington said, I'll give you this much money. The governor of, of Virginia said, I'll give you twice that. Um, and it's, it's, it's simple economics. It's going to move. But it's all about your philosophy of how much money you want to spend on these great public spaces that can be magnets for development uh, or a drain on your public finances, depending on how you view it. But it's, it's interesting, the Minneapolis example, because I've never heard the fact that there's not an American airport within the top 20 airports in the world. And you can imagine that sooner or later, some city somewhere says we want to be on that list, not to compete with other cities in the United States, but with those in the rest of the world. All right, we're going to try and do what we do at the end of this, which is work out what if we weren't choosing our own story would lead of these three stories. So Mary, if you weren't choosing airports, what between Taylor Swift and the Metropolitan Police? Wow. All right. One is... The Taylor Swift thing matters to me a lot because heading into an election, nobody knows what to trust. The idea that one in three Republicans actually believe there's a conspiracy there that this grand thing where she's going to sway the election. So that whole thing is frightening. And if you care about democracy, which relies on people believing facts, that's scary. But the police thing is also massively important because it's, I think probably worldwide, there is a great concern about authority, right? The abuse of authority and that the people that are supposed to protect us aren't vetted well. Um, but for the moment, I'm going to go with truth uh, uh, and the, the problems with these conspiracies that nobody can even agree on the facts. They can't agree that one young singer really likes this football player. All of a sudden it has become you know, an evil conspiracy to uh, at the ballot box. So I guess I'll go with that one this time. And actually, Mary, can I just press you one, on one thing? I'm really aware, talking to you, that, you know, you, you and Kevin both worked here for a while, so you understand how a UK newspaper in the old days in print chose its stories and how different that was from the paper where the two of you have worked for so long, the Washington Post. Things that, you know, we would struggle to get inside in the paper. You might, on a US paper, certainly the Washington Post, get on the front page and then run for a couple of thousand words inside. And I just wondered what you think about the whole idea of leading the news now when fewer people read papers in print. There's obviously a kind of wild competition for what's the most important story, not the most popular, but the most important story online, and whether or not you feel as though TV news is taking over from print news, and if you like, defining what the daily agenda is, what, if you like, defines the leading news story of the day. I think print still defines TV. I know for a fact that like a lot of the TV producers and TV look still to the best news organizations, print news organizations to kind of line up the news. I think that the fast pace of TV has made them kind of lean into us more, the 
print, the big print organizations about what's important. But this is critical because at a time when the economics of news is tough, you want people to read. So if you put something up about Meghan Merkel or you put something up about losing weight, you get more people reading it. And then of course that means more advertising. So there is this constant discussion about this mixture of, you know, don't just give people what we know they will read. Let's really invest in important stories that we need as a country. And that actually does happen. It's quite impressive. Um, and some of the things that, like we'll put two of our best reporters at the Washington Post on something for a year. Like one of the things was, you know, are wealthy people getting transplanted organs any faster? Is there an unfairness there? Super important issue, right? They put two of the best people for you. They didn't find it. So they, you know, that was a good investment. But this is a constant tension. Don't just give people what we, you know, popcorn. Let's give them some meat and potatoes too. Right, Jeevan, your story out of those between Kevin and Mary's story, this is the judgment of Solomon. <laughs> um, Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey, it's not a fair game, Kevin. Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey or the dilapidation of American aviation infrastructure. I am compelled by Taylor Swift because of uh, what it tells us about paranoia amongst elements of American society. And I'm also interested in, in what it says about kind of culture and politics. Uh, but you know me, James, I'll always vote for the boring story. So <laughs> airports wins. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I you know, I, I, but what I'm interested in here is actually the why of this. So, I mean, you know, there was a point at which the US built transcontinental railroads and now you can't get a train from JFK to Manhattan. You can't get a train from LA to San Francisco. San Francisco. It's bizarre. Why is that? Is that because they're spending money money elsewhere? There are lobby groups. You know, I'd like to know more about that. All right, Kevin, you lost. What do you choose if you can't have Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey? Uh, what do you choose between uh, airports and the police? Well, I challenge a bit the whole concept of lead story. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure we even we have the luxury of having such a thing anymore. Um, you can't just have. You can't. You can't argue against the police story. That's one of the most fundamentally important things in society. You can't argue against public infrastructure and public spaces. That's also incredibly important. And, you know, Taylor Swift, for what she says about truth and the meaning of truth and the meaning of misinformation. You know, if you have a, if you have a plate, somebody gives you a plate with, a, you know, chicken, potatoes, and vegetables, some people see chicken as the lead, some people see the vegetables as the lead. Some people like the, some people like Mary Jordan would prefer the, would prefer the potatoes. You can't. <laughs> You can't just. I, I think. I think the idea of the, the it used to be when we had when we had a print newspaper, whatever was in that upper right hand corner, that was the lead story. I don't think we can yeah. do that anymore. I think. I think you you have to give you have to give people a, a a mix of important things that are that are important for different reasons. The the, the only reason that I still think it's worth trying to figure out. Partly because it's the way in which I grew up as a journalist. You go and sit in that afternoon news meeting and say, what are we putting on the front page? And that was a signifier. Partly is what you say, Mary, what people would read most, but also what you thought was most important. And I completely get the point that's harder and harder to do, certainly with social media feeds, and it's even quite hard to do with, you know, moving websites and newsletters. But there are some places where you still have to make the call. So in my last job... If you're running the BBC 
any bulletin or any news programme, you do have to make a decision on what's the first story you talk about, second, third, fourth. And and that's why I think it's still worthwhile, because you're really trying to work out what the thinking is behind that hierarchy. So I'm going to go back to you. Let's <laughs> say that you do have your chicken, your vegetables and your potatoes, and you're you, Kevin, not Mary with her kind of need for carbs. What do you choose between those those two stories between police and airports a big part of me thinks whatever mary thinks is the lead story is okay with me (laughs) (laughs) however (laughs) that's just simple survival Uh, (laughs) but i i do think it's uh, yeah the the police story is just too fundamental to who we are as people and if, if people don't feel safe in their communities if people don't feel like they have they can trust in the people who are there to to, to to keep keep all the craziness on the on the on the on the right side of wrong. Um, that's that's pretty fundamental. I mean, the airport story is hugely important, but I I would have to vote for the police story. So so for what it's worth, I would do the same. And actually, the reason why I don't hesitate is because it tells you so much about people, the police, digital technologies, what we allow until it's no longer possible and it seems as though there have been so many things in the way in which the police have worked but also in our culture around you know language and images and technology so I'd lead with the police the interesting thing is the tension between your two stories I find that much harder because I think that the um, Taylor Swift Travis Kelsey story is really difficult in that nothing's happened the whole thing is a nonsense and it's a signifier of something very significant and so are you giving people a talking point with no there there? Um, and meanwhile, the airport story is exactly the kind of story that always gets neglected. And as you say, Mary, you then end up with years and years and years of people going, this is awful. Why do we trip through places and deal with businesses that treat us so badly? So I suppose on balance, I would probably go the second story airports and the third story Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey because it's a talker, but not necessarily something that significant that's happened. But the 19 billion at JFK is a test of whether or not you can change the infrastructure in the world's most important economy. So I'm intrigued by that. So I'd end up with Metropolitan Police, American airports, and then the story that everyone will talk about, (laughs) Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. Um, With that, I'm going to wind things up. I'm going to just remind people that this month, March, we're going to start getting your regular, relatively short notes from a big country that I hope will help us think about, as you said, Kevin, American politics in a way that isn't just being at a rally or isn't just following polling numbers or isn't just he said, he said, but is a here's how the United States really is, politically or otherwise. And thank you for sparing the time having got up preposterously early in the morning uh, to make sure that you can record this podcast. And thank you, Jeevan, for coming downstairs into the podcast studio and being here too. Thanks, James. Before we're done, though, I just wanted to mention one other thing. We've got a new series out that's reported by Alexi Mostras, the person who investigated the Sweet Bobby series, the person who investigated Hoax. This one is called Who Trolled Amber?, Millions of people watched the trial of Johnny Depp versus his ex-wife Amber Heard in the US in 2022. Unlike the trial for libel in the UK, Amber Heard lost and Johnny Depp was vindicated. 
But what if Heard was actually the victim of an organised trolling campaign? What if the online hate against her was manufactured? Well, in a year when billions of people are heading to the polls, who trolled Amber starts to ask some pretty difficult questions around the shady industry of social media manipulation. And it reveals how bots and trolls can sway opinions from celebrity trials to general elections. Do listen. What comes to mind when you think of Amber Heard? A liar? A survivor? A narcissist? The trial of Depp v Heard was a global phenomenon, but I want to know, was it a fair fight? I'm Alexi Mostris, the host of Sweet Bobby and Hoaxed. In my new podcast, I'm investigating whether Amber Heard was the victim of an organised trolling campaign. Just search for Who Trolled Amber wherever you get your podcasts. The first two episodes of Who Trolled Amber are out now, and the new episodes are going to be released weekly. Of course, if you're a Tortoise member or you subscribe to Tortoise Plus on Apple Podcasts, you can listen to the whole series right now. Thank you for listening to the news meeting. We're going to be back on Monday. And I'm going to finish up, I promise I won't make a habit of this, with the editor's voicemail. But for reasons I hope you'll understand, I wanted to end this week on a personal note. About five years ago, Jacob Rothschild invited me for lunch. He wanted to learn more, he said, about energy and climate. He wondered if we could, quote, bring together the Israelis and the Palestinians of the energy transition. In other words, he wanted to see if we could get the oil and gas people and the renewables people in the same room. And perhaps, he thought, we might come to a better understanding, maybe even move things along. Today that phrase, bring together the Israelis and Palestinians, seems even more fraught and necessary than it did then. But that was what he did. Jacob Rothschild brought people together. At that lunch at the Pavilion in Wadston back in 2019, Jacob invited just three of us around the table. Philip Lambert, perhaps the best-known behind-the-scenes advisor to the world's largest energy companies, Claire Perry O'Neill, the former UK energy minister who had been so instrumental in bringing COP to Glasgow, and me. And together, as a result of that lunch, we set up the Responsible Energy Forum. It was organised by Tortoise, enabled by the Rothschild Foundation, and hosted by Jacob at Wadston. On the back of its success, we established a series of responsible business forums, trying to get to hear from different sides on the pitched battles of our times. Robocops versus Terminators on AI, or the farmers versus the rewilders on food, the financial performance investors versus the social impact campaigners on business and investment. And as a result, as Jacob intended, Wadston Manor the estate that's home to the rather eccentric Loire Valley-style chateau that Baron Ferdinand de Rothschild had built in the 1870s on the outskirts of Aylesbury in Buckinghamshire, well, Wadston, that place that Jacob had rescued from a state of disrepair, that he'd rebuilt and built anew, it became what he hoped, a place where several times a year people on very different sides of the argument came together. Jacob Rothschild, or Lord R, as they all referred to him at Wadston, died this week at the age of 87. And although I knew he had been fading these past few weeks, I've been surprised, not just by how sad I've been, given that he had a life so extraordinarily well lived, but shocked too, realising how much I, and I think we all, have lost. I'm James Harding, I'm the editor of Tortoise, and in this week's editor's voicemail, I just wanted to try and explain how much I learned from him. 
from Jacob's effort, care and the courage it takes to bring people together. I should say, I only got to know him when he was already into his 70s. So there are others who have much more to say about the chapters of his life as a banker and businessman, the deals and the investments that were city fables by the time I met him. By then too, he had, in his determined, detailed way, restored some of London's faded palaces, Somerset House and Spencer House. He'd also stewarded the rebuilding and revival of places like the National Gallery and the Courtauld Institute. To me, though, Jacob was a gentleman and a forceful presence. He managed both to put me at my ease and keep me on my toes. He had an extraordinary capacity, in fact, to be two things at once. He was, of course, a Rothschild. But he was passed over when it came to running the family bank, and so he was a self-made man before he inherited a family fortune. I've no idea whether he was ever pained or worried by the horrible, hate-filled use of the name Rothschild on social media, but in the real world, he seemed to treat the name both as a responsibility to his family's past and a means of making a difference in the future. He switched easily back and forth between business and politics, painting and sculpture. He was outwardly conservative and extremely courteous, but when it came to art and people, he had an appetite for the eccentric, the unexpected and the playful. When they were little, my kids thought that he and his late wife Serena were the king and queen. She was also, as it happens, a great owner of racehorses, and she could immediately tell I had no idea about any of that, so instead we talked about how much we both loved Paddington too. Jacob was generous and also demanding. Hello, it's Jacob, he'd say when he called, an introduction that was unnecessary, as no one else I've known had a voice quite like that, deep and warm, his vowels as long as his arms. And I'd sit up straight as soon as he called and think, this'll be interesting, and it always was. He was a formidably good listener, but he didn't hoard information. He shared stories and observations. He epitomised discernment, something that's a bit more critical than appreciation and not as know-it-all as judgment. Lord R likes to build things, I was once told. That was by way of explanation for how the Flint House, a modern building that won the Reba House of the Year Award, came to be built just down from the Wadston Archive at Windmill Hill, which he had also rebuilt and modernised. He built businesses and he built places, and he also built up people too. In the last five years, he was an extraordinary enthusiast and supporter of Tortoise. He was hard to thank, but he was all too easy when it came to lavishing praise on us. Looking back, it's telling that our first really substantial conversations were about the Balfour Declaration. Telling not just because the State of Israel was close to his heart, but because the Balfour Declaration is one of those milestones in history that is so easily and lazily misremembered, written off as a British redrawing of the Middle East map with a stroke of the dying imperial pen. The Balfour Declaration was contained in a letter from the British Foreign Secretary Arthur Balfour to the then Lord Rothschild in November 1917. And when we first spoke about it, Jacob was thinking, a few years in advance, about how to mark its 100th anniversary. He was keen to bring people together, not just to mark it, but to understand it. Being Jewish, I thought I should really understand it too, and remember feeling embarrassed at the realisation that I didn't actually know what it said. And here's what Balfour wrote to the then Lord Rothschild. His Majesty's government view with favour the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people, and will use their best endeavours to facilitate the achievement of this object. It being clearly understood 
that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. Disputed and debated as the Balfour Declaration may be, it's hard when you read it today not to be struck by its concise concern for the interests of all parties. I'm sure that one of the reasons I feel so knocked by Jacob's death is the context of the murders, rape and hostage-taking in Israel, the killing of some 30,000 people now in Gaza. As the weeks have gone on, I found myself more and more turned off by those people telling you ever more loudly the righteousness of their cause, talking over you to enumerate the justification for their side, using language and labels that divide us and deny the other side a voice. Worst of all, politicians and demagogues looking to make domestic political capital out of a catastrophe. More and more, I find myself wondering, where are the places where people from all sides can come together to understand? I'm even more aware of how hard it is to create an environment where people are willing to listen, how much generosity of spirit it takes to invite in people whose views threaten you, how much it takes to bring people together. Jacob Rothschild's last great building project was the National Library in Israel. He worked on it for more than 20 years, and he was preparing to go to Jerusalem to mark its completion when the attacks of October the 7th meant the official opening was called off. He did not live to set foot in the new building, but he'd always been clear who it was for. Everybody. A place open to all. As he put it, a library without borders. Long after he's gone, I like to think, Jacob will keep bringing people together. Tortoise. Hello, I'm Giles Wittell, Tortoise's deputy editor. On the News Meeting podcast, we try to make sense of what should be leading the news with three guests who each pitched the story they think matters most. And once a month, we record a live episode in our newsroom. The next one is on the 27th of March, and I'm going to be joined by the brilliant author and podcaster Elizabeth Day. To come to the event and tell us what you think should lead the news, go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash book. That is tortoisemedia.com forward slash book.